great time to hear the word of the Lord just in the story fashion in which it was written. So um, uh, if you would like next week uh, to, to bring someone, it's a wonderful week for them to come and get plugged in. And we're going to cover a whole lot of territory in one class. I was asked to announce this Bible was left here last week if anybody uh, wants to claim it. And when they handed it to me, I looked at it and thought, so that's where it is. It's mine, so don't claim it. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I asked Beck if she had seen it and... No, so we had Old Faithful to prepare this week, and uh, um, anyway, okay, um, thank you, Lewis, for filling in last week. I hear he regaled you with the fact that he, his comeback tie in racquetball, um, and I'm glad he was able to tell you all about the comeback tie. What, he said he won? Oh, no, he did not. He's a man of the cloth. He said he won? Well, we keep track of who wins over the year. And I was pretty far ahead for the year, but evidently not far enough. And he had a comeback to where he's tied for the year now. So I'm glad he announced that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he beat the tar out of me last week. Um, is it, we are on. Okay. Y'all are done? I had to like tread water for three minutes while they changed out CDs. Now we're ready to go with class. We start with class participation. You say with me, the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. Oh, very good. Let's do it one more time. The Pentateuch. That is what we discussed today. Sound like a vegetable? It's not, but it could be. This is going to be good. The Pentateuch. How did we get to this point, you might ask? Where have we been in this class? We've talked about how God made man. We've talked about how God made man in his image. That God made man not to be alone. God made man to be in fellowship with God. And it's, uh, the illustration that I've used is like, um, uh, if these keys are, are you and me, this is man and woman, and the keys in the hand is God, God made man to be in fellowship with God. This is God, this is us, we're with Him. See? That's the way we're made. And, and we only feel right when we're in relationship with God. That's the whole reason God made us. God did not make us because God needed us. God made us to give to us because God is a giving being and to love us. And so we're with God. The problem is, is we said, no, we don't want to stay here. We'd rather sin. And sin separates from God. Now, this analogy breaks down because it shows my hand letting go of the keys. God did not let go of us. We fell from him from, by our sin. It's as if they were held up here by a string and sin cut the string. And now man is down there and God is up here. And that's the biblical problem set out in the Garden of Eden in the fall. And the rest of the Bible is concerned with how do the keys get back into the hands of God who made them? How do you and I have our relationship, our fellowship with God restored? And this is a Bible story, a Bible focus, God's redemption of the human race. Redemption in the sense of God buying back from the pit of hell the soul of, of man. The, the Bible saga, if you will, is a saga of God getting man back into the fellowship 
we were made to be in. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, this is the story of redemption. And we used as one of our theology term de jures. Do you remember it? Several weeks ago, we had, I think three weeks ago, we had progressive revelation. Let me remind you. Progressive revelation means God did not reveal Himself and this saga of redemption in one fell swoop on the day after uh, um, the fall. God did not immediately impart the Bible. Boom, there it is. Rather, God interacted with people through history in a way that progressively or more and more and more revealed not only who God is, His character, but also His work in redeeming mankind. So as we read the Bible, when you start with Genesis, you don't read the whole thing that was handed out at once. You read something that has evolved over 1,500 plus years as God has progressively revealed more and more who He is and and progressively revealed more and more how He has gone about redeeming the human race. The redemption that we're talking about here is God's kingdom in Bible terms. These are all Bible terms we're going to get familiar with as we read through here. But in a broad overview perspective, you need to think, what is a kingdom? What is a kingdom? It is a king with his peoples, right? right? The kingdom of God is God and his people. And so uh, mankind, originally the kingdom of God was, was there. Man was in the kingdom of God. He was with God and his people. Sin separated man from the kingdom of God. The story of redemption can also be called the story of the coming kingdom to mankind. It is the story of of God bringing His kingdom to us, or we could say, bringing us back into His kingdom. Does that make sense? If we were to to work on trying to become theologians... um, Okay, there's a better way to do this, I've been told, than I've been doing it. Um, can you all, that, that may not be it. I'll learn one. Um, there is a better way. If we were theologians, there are different kinds of theologians. The word theologian means someone who is, yeah, focus is going to be a big help. Oh, hey. We have the technology, we can make it work. Um, theologians. There are different kinds of theologians who write different kinds of books. Becky and I were talking about this last night. And, and um, um, she said, when you talked about remnant theology, I'd never really heard that before. And I've been going to church umpteen gazillion years. And I said, yeah, there are what are called remnant theologians. And these are people who read the Bible and, and they believe that the, the one common theme throughout the Bible is the remnant theme. Namely, if you remember, that God works through a remnant. You know, um, Cain kills Abel, but that's okay. God brings Seth. You know, um, all of mankind's destroying the, the world and themselves, and God brings the flood to destroy him, but God works through a remnant of Noah. 
and, and Israelites get conquered and they go off to Babylon and get dispersed, but God brings a remnant back and through that comes Jesus. There are remnant theologians. Um, and, and I think the remnant theme is a very valid theme in the Bible. I don't think it's the theme in the Bible, but it's a very valid one that we've talked about. Another one, there are kingdom theologians who say the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. And to an extent that can be true, but the Bible was not written as a literature book that we might write in the 21st century or, or, or the 20th century that has a constant theme throughout in that sense. The Bible is a multi-woven fabric, a tapestry that's got a variety of themes. And just like a tapestry, you can start over here and you can find the, the purple thread and you can follow the purple thread as it's woven and sometimes it disappears into the back of the fabric, but sometimes it comes out to show the king's uh, robe and then it may disappear again and then it may come back out. And you can follow that thread throughout the tapestry in the same way the Bible's got a lot of themes and a lot of threads that are woven in and out. And so you may come across in your reading uh, one day, if you decide to read theology, someone who's a kingdom theologian. Now, a kingdom theologian has got some valid themes because the Bible itself talks about the kingdom. In fact, Jesus could have been called a kingdom, of, a kingdom theologian. He came preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. On the cross, the thief says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Okay? So, God and His people is a very valid theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's particularly valid. Who are the people of God in the Old Testament? Good guess. The Israelites. The Israelites are the people of God in the Old Testament. God's Bible is written in a wonderful way. Our Bible, God's Word, is written in a wonderful way. We understand now through progressive revelation, as the whole revelation has been completed, we understand ultimately God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And we are, we being His people, are, are the kingdom people. Okay? In the Old Testament, God sets up His kingdom in a particular way as a, a foreshadowing or um, um, there's a better word for that and I, I'm not thinking what it is right now, but, but a type of His kingdom to give us a picture image of what is going to be coming in our lives. And we will see Israel as the kingdom of God in its Old Testament form. So what I'd like to do is understand now how the Old Testament lays this out. Okay? Let's start. The preparation for the kingdom, and, and here we are talking strictly about the kingdom of God in its Old Testament form. Let's do it this way. Um, this is the Bible. The Bible is Genesis to Revelation. All right? Now, the Bible's divided up into the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? So this is going to be the Old Testament. And this part's going to be the New Testament because the Old Testament's longer. So we made it bigger. So this, is, this, is, uh, this is to scale. Okay. That's actually, not quite. That line should be right there. <laughs> 
Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're blowing off the New Testament right now. So we're going to look at the kingdom of God in the Bible. But we're not going to worry about the New Testament. We're just going to focus on the Old Testament for a minute. Y'all with me? Okay. Now, the Old Testament does a couple of things. The first thing it does, if we go back here, see, it talks about the preparation for the kingdom. So we're going to divide this Old Testament part into three. We're going to have the preparation, getting ready for the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? Israel. Okay. This is the preparation for the kingdom. And then the next thing we got is uh, the establishment of the kingdom. You all see that? Through Moses. Okay. So we got the preparation. We got the establishment. And this is through Moses. Moses. Can you say that without thinking of... Do you, who saw the Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments? I just love the way that Pharaoh's daughter... You say, Moses. <laughs> Moses. I, I always thought she was pretty cute when I was a kid and I saw that movie. Uh, and she'd just say that, Moses. You know, it's, I haven't seen the movie since I was like 10 years old, but I... Remember how she said Moses. Um, we've got the establishment, and then finally we've got the big three, the development, expression, and extension of the kingdom through the prophets and the poets. That's a lot to handle. We don't have to today. It doesn't have anything to do with today's lesson. But ultimately, it is the third part of what we see in the Old Testament. We see not only the preparation for Israel, the establishment of Israel, but we sort of see the way Israel works out, for lack of a better word phrase. All right. Now, this is what we have biblically. And what I want us to focus on today is not that development expression and extension. We can worry about that later. Today, we're going to look at the preparation and the establishment of the kingdom of God through Moses. Okay. Now, we'll really start getting into this as we tell the story next week. And now that you've eaten this much of the vegetable, we won't have to go through all of this dry part. So this is why it's a good week to bring visitors. They will not sit there and fall asleep for this part. But you have had your vegetables. You've had your nourishment. And you know what? We can eat some more. So let's keep going. More vegetables. The Old Testament itself is divided into three parts. And I'm, let me look at this, see if this is on the outline. I do these outlines and PowerPoints separately. Um, yeah, subpoint C if you're following along the outline, which isn't necessary, but if you do, it's a good place to do it. Um, the Old Testament is divided into three parts. Who made that division, you say? Um, people, scholars, types, okay? It's not uh, something God did. God did not write the Old Testament and put it into three parts, but it's something that... Uh, um, scholars and students of the Word have done. Now please understand, when did Bible scholars start? Well, they've been around since before Jesus, right? And they were a bunch of Bible scholars that killed Him. Um, Bible scholars have been around. These separations of the Old Testament have been around over 2,000 years. The first area is called the law. The law. 
I, that's, that's a group of the Old Testament scriptures. The law is often called the Torah. We've got, let me see, check my laser pointer here and see if I can blind anybody. Art, stand up. This is Art Rothenberg. All right, thanks. Y'all know Art? Hello, Art. Okay. Art uh, is, has got Jewish heritage. Who else in here has Jewish heritage? I didn't mean to embarrass you. Thank you, Art. Uh, I know Art's brother, Scott, who's a, a lawyer. Uh, I met them differently, but uh, anyway. Who knows, who else in here? Is Ira Wiesel in here today? No Ira today. Um, anybody else in here with any Jewish blood? Okay, yeah. Philip from my office. Philip Sanoff, that's right. Anybody else? I see some hands, but you're embarrassed for me to like make you stand up. Thanks, Art. Um, the law in Hebrew would be called the Torah. The Torah. Say it. Torah. That's a word that's worth knowing. Okay? You can ask someone who has Hebrew blood or a Hebrew faith, if they don't have Hebrew blood, if they read Torah. That means do they read the law? Um, actually, in Hebrew, to say the law, you'd put ha in front of Torah. That's ha-Torah. And uh, uh, the, the law is, in Hebrew, the Torah. Another phrase that's used for the law is the first five books of Moses. And that's what a lot of Jews called them, the first five books of Moses. Or sometimes they'd put the two together, the law of Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's say them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are people in here that don't know that. There are people in here that do know that. We need to learn it. Those five books are called the five books of Moses. If you're Jewish, they're called the Torah. They are called the law. They are called the law of Moses. They are also called in, in Greek the Pentateuch, which is a word y'all have been saying since class started. Um, now, these three Old Testament divisions, we've got the law. In addition, we've got the prophets. Okay? That's a separate set of the Old Testament. And the Hebrews would divide the prophets into two different sets. There are the early prophets and the later prophets. The early prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, as, a, as an English student, I would not have guessed that the book of Joshua is considered a prophet book. Because I think of prophets as someone who's talking about the end time, you know? And what we have with the, the, the book of Joshua is someone who's talking about when Moses dies and the uh, conquering of the, the promised land. Looks, it reads like a history book. In fact, when Will, our 18-year-old, was a young boy, he used to love to go to sleep at night when he was like three and four years old. He did not listen to Salty the singing songbook like our girls did. He liked to listen to the Old Testament cassette tapes on NIV. If you've got young kids or grandkids, and some of them are warmongering boys, and, and uh, get the tape of Joshua. Oh, Dad, tonight, can I listen to the part where they go into war and kill everybody? 
sure, son, sleep well. And we would put the Bible in. This is about the time where he'd parade around the house in his little plastic get-ups proclaiming the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And, um, um, but but in, in, in Bible speak, in Hebrew Bible speak, the prophets, the early prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The other part of the prophets are the latter prophets or the later prophets. And those are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what they called the 12 minor prophets. So now we've got two divisions here. We've got the law and we've got the prophets. And sometimes the prophets included all the other writings too. But most of the time they get their own classifications. They're just called the writings. And in a Hebrew Bible you will see the law, the Torah, you will see the prophets, and you will see the writings. In Greek, they're called the hagiographa because uh, uh, it means that's two Greek words put together. It means holy writings, okay? Um, and so this is what you have. Now, uh, the holy writings, the hagiographa, include poetry. Daniel, which most of us would have thought was a prophet book, it's not considered a prophet book, it's considered a holy writing, and the historical books, the chronicles type stuff that's in, in the Old Testament. Um, so we've got these, the law, the prophets, the writings. Sometimes the writings are just called the Psalms because that's the biggest part of them. If we go back to a scale drawing and we want to do our, our scale drawing of the writings part of the Bible, what you're going to have there is you're going to have Psalms, you're going to have Proverbs, but you know, Psalms is like 150 chapters and some of them are real long. 151 in the Hebrew. The Proverbs, it's just like 31 chapters and they're all real short. So they're just like real small here. And if you think the Proverbs are small, the Song of Solomon is like, oh yeah, man, it's just like, it's like a pinch of salt. Okay? I mean, the Psalms are like four cups of flour. All right? The, the Proverbs may be a cup of milk. Okay? By the time you get to the Song of Solomon, you're a pinch of salt. I mean, it's just real small. So when you've got all these real small things that go in the writings, um, lots of times the Psalms are what uh, uh, people call the writings, okay? as opposed to uh, the writings. I guess it's more personal. Um, now, look at Luke 24:44, or make a note. Okay, make a note of Luke 24, 44. This is Jesus talking. This is our Lord. Good Hebrew scholar that he was. He just stood up when I said, who has Hebrew blood, right? He says, Jesus says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in, what's he say? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He knew those three groups, didn't he? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, he could have, for us, in 21st century Christian talk, he could have just said, in the Old Testament. But he didn't. Because it was the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Sometimes they would roll, like I told you, they'd roll the writings or the Psalms in with the prophets. And so, you can see, sometimes it's just two divisions, the law and the prophets. And the prophets often included the writings. And that's like Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, so in everything do to others, the golden rule here, 
do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. You see how Jesus used those phrases? That's why he used them that way. This is our Old Testament division. And so this brings us now to our theological term de jure. The law or the law of Moses is what theologians call the Pentateuch. Okay? The Pentateuch comes from two Greek words, penta, which means five, and tuch, writing or books. Um, the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament. And we can talk about them. My challenge for you is to use that word today over your Sunday lunch. The Pentateuch. Or use it this week. Just use it at work. Find your secretary and say, as I was thinking about the Pentateuch, you know, you could get a promotion if you use that word. You could also land in jail, depending on what they think you really said. Um, but the Pentateuch, um, we know penta means five. A pentagram is a five-sided figure, right? Um, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. We have already covered, it's called the Torah. And, and if you look at these passages like Deuteronomy 31.26 or Joshua 1.8, if we were reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, if we were reading the Torah, that's where it actually says HaTorah and, and calls it the Torah. It's also called the first five books of Moses. And with all of those vegetables, are we done? Oh, no. We have more vegetables coming. The Pentateuch. The first five books of Moses, the law, the Torah, all of this covers the preparation and establishment of the kingdom of God in its Old Testament form. That's what it covers. First five books of Moses. The first five books will cover the preparation and the actual establishment of the kingdom of God. If we go back to where we started this, we said there are sort of three things here. If we divide the Bible up and look at the Old Testament for the kingdom of God, we're going to see the preparation, the establishment through Moses, and the working out. And I said we don't have to worry about that today because this part is what's covered in the Pentateuch are in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And um, the time span here is from creation through the death of Moses. And that's what we have. This material is covered in those five books. That's why we call it the Pentateuch. Whoops. I have just... Okay. The time spans creation through the death of Moses... And this is our five books. This is the Pentateuch. And so, let's look at the five books as we continue to sharpen our focus down. These five books, the first one is Genesis. Genesis has what we would call preliminary history. It doesn't have the establishment of Israel in it. It's got the build-up. It starts with the creation story, which shows the need for the kingdom of God to come back among men. Okay? It shows the prophecy that the kingdom of God is going to be coming. And Genesis covers the entire stretch from Adam and Eve through what are called the patriarchs. Patriarchs means um, the, the fathers of uh, the Hebrew nation. And they start with Abraham, and they continue with Isaac and Jacob. And this is the story that we're going to be telling as we cover Genesis next week in a story sense. 
and we tell the story that's contained in Genesis. After Genesis, we have Exodus. In Exodus, we'll see the inauguration of the kingdom of God. God setting up His kingdom among men in its Old Testament form. And then we'll go to Leviticus and see how God talks about the spiritual organization of His kingdom. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then what? Numbers. Good. Oh, come on. Let's do all five again. Some of you don't have these memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These five books are the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the Law of Moses. In Numbers, we'll see the political organization of the kingdom of God, how God set it up politically. And then finally in Deuteronomy, we will see a recapitulation as the whole story is sort of put back together. Now, I want to talk briefly before we end about Arthur. 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 I'm from Lubbock, and we're going to cover the Arthur ship. Ask that fella that wrote them things. His name was Arthur. Um, if he's just doing the numbers, he'd be that Arthur Anderson. Um, oh yeah, that's bad. Do we have any more white paper? Um, easily accessible? Don't worry about it, Philip. I'll write here. Can you all see? No, you can't. It doesn't matter, Philip. Okay, here we go. We're going to write on the back here. Um, if you ever have a chance to go buy a, a study book for the Bible, you must be careful what you buy. Okay? Let me tell you why. Um, first of all, uh, who, who is the author of the Bible? God, Holy Spirit, same thing. Good, good answer. Okay. Did God lie in the Bible? No. That was a, a no-brainer. No. Okay. Um, now, Satan is God's friend or enemy? Enemy. Does Satan want to see God succeed in his plans? No. So, is the Bible important in God's plans? Yes. Now, imagine yourself the enemy for a moment. You're strategizing as Satan. You do not want God's plans to succeed, and you know that the Bible is important to his plans. Would you spend any time tampering with it and messing with it? Sure. And if God was going to try, and, and, and I'm sure God would ensure that his word would continue in what he wants it to be. But if you're the enemy, would you at least try to mess with how people understand it and see it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was shocked to find out that a number of people at established seminaries throughout the world are atheists who teach at these seminaries. Religion has become a field of study, folks. And it's not just something that people turn to out of uh, faith. It's an intellectual exercise for many, like logic. Or like uh, any number of different fields of study. When I had a chance to, um, uh, uh, when I was in, in my schooling, um, I had a chance to go over, I went to a, a, what's equivalent of a Church of Christ seminary, I guess you would say, for, for my Bible degree. And uh, it was in the same town as Vanderbilt's Divinity School. 
And I had an opportunity to go hear a gentleman who was brought in to speak from Harvard's Divinity School. And I was excited to go hear this gentleman. Um, I'd read much of his stuff, uh, I thought. Uh, it turned out I'd only read one book and I hadn't really understood what I was reading. Um, but I, I knew enough about him to where I was interested. And I went and what uh, doc, this, this gentleman said is, he said, uh, Folks out there, you're going to take jobs preaching. And we live in a world where, you know, just between you and me, we all know there's no such thing as God. But when you're preaching, you're going to have people who believe in God. And so you've got to preach a God of love because we need to convince people out there that there is a God of love. If not, with all these nuclear weapons and stuff we've got, we could, like, blow up the world. That is distilled into one minute what this guy took an hour to say. And um, the question and answer period afterward was, was as eye-opening to me as the actual lecture. Uh, a fellow held his hand up, about a 30-year-old man, said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a Methodist minister, and I've been feeling a lot of guilt lately because... Um, of, of lying to my congregation about the idea there's a God. And you sure have made me feel a lot better um, because I, I don't feel so guilty now. I see I'm doing it for the good of mankind. And I, I went back and, and my major professor had gone to this too and we were talking about it, and Dr. Floyd, Harvey Floyd. And Dr. Floyd said to me, he said that he, he lamented and was tearful for that preacher that there wasn't a man of God who could stand up and say to him, do you not understand if there was no God, you would have no guilt? The very fact that you feel guilty about lying should tell you that deep within you is morality that came from a God who is moral. I said, boy, that's, that's a good point. And you know, I'm still kind of shell-shocked. I'm kind of, did you know that guy doesn't believe in God and he teaches at Harvard and Vanderbilt Divinity Schools? And, and um, if, you, if you get, there are a number of books that you can get that will talk about the Bible and that will talk about the Pentateuch and does so in ways that are destructive and faith-challenging as opposed to constructive and faith-affirming. And you need to be careful what you get. You need to be careful what you read. Am I saying ignore those? No. I had a, a youth minister, a youth pastor when I was growing up. I wanted to be a preacher, and I, I had one of three occupations, either preacher, lawyer, or, or politician. And uh, uh, as I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get my, my degree, my divinity, or Bible degree, we called them, and then I'm going to go to Harvard Divinity School, and then I'm going to, and he said, don't go to Harvard. And I said, why not? And he said, because you'll lose your faith. I said, well, well why would I lose my faith? And he said, don't ever get into to intellectual Christianity. You'll lose your faith. And that really bothered me. And I did not accept that. I don't think that's the right answer either. Put on blinders, because if you read the stuff put out by the intellectuals, you'll lose your faith. I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, my God's a God of truth. My truth will stand up against any honest intellectual inquiry. So I'm not saying put on blinders and don't read what some of these people write about the Old Testament. But I am telling you to be careful what you read and make sure you're ready to digest it. Because you see, 
there was a fellow, a German theologian named Wellhausen. We're getting off the script here, so sorry while we ad-lib. I've got a, three more minutes. I can do this. Wellhausen, which uh, if anybody speaks German, they know it starts with a W. Um, Wellhausen came up with what was called the Wellhausen Hypothesis. And it's almost taken for granted as being true now 150 years later. Wellhausen said, if you read your Hebrew Old Testament, sometimes you'll read about Jehovah or Yahweh. Sometimes you'll read about Elohim, which is God. Sometimes you'll read things that have a priestly connotation, like um, it's really holding up the priesthood and trying to take care of that. You'll have this Deuteronomic legal type stuff too. Okay? And, and what Wellhausen said is, is Moses did not have anything to do with writing those first five books. They're not books of Moses. What those first five books are is there was some oral tradition about Jehovah as a God. There was some oral tradition about Elohim as God. An oral tradition that was trying to take care of the priests and the law. And let's just take the first letters of each of those. And somebody took them and put them all together. And that's what the Bible is. And that was probably done about three or 400 B.C. That's what those first five books are. It's just a put together from these four different sources. And you got two different stories of creation because they couldn't decide which one to put in. You got the one where he did it in seven days and you got the one where he just started with the Garden of Eden. This is what these guys teach. And not only these guys, this is a leading scholastic thought in most uh, what I would consider secular divinity schools and some that are even religious divinity schools. Um, people say, there's no way Moses wrote those books. There's no way Moses had anything to do with writing those books. Uh, those books had to have been written 1600 B.C., 1500 B.C. There wasn't even good writing then. Those books were written 400 B.C., maybe 500 they were put together. This is what people say. Let me tell you, this is not the claim of the Bible. The claim of the Bible is, and you can see it in Exodus 7, whoops, the claim of the Bible is, you can see it in Exodus 17, 14, Exodus 24, 3, uh, 34, 27, Numbers 33, 2, Deuteronomy 31, 9. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the people. After Moses finished writing on a book the words of this law, the Torah, the first five, um, and, and you sit there, well, now, I don't have a picture of Moses writing it. But you can do some good investigation if you do it from a, a clean perspective. And you can see, well, I didn't put it up here. Um, I, I, put, I put some references to it in there. For example, there are Egyptisms, what we would call Egyptisms, in these first five books. References that the Egyptians were clean-shaven and abhorred beards. Okay? The odds are not real good that somebody in about four or 500 B.C. knew that kind of stuff. The person who knew that kind of stuff is the person who's alive during the Egyptian captivity of the Israelites. Moses. There are a number of Egyptisms that we know about today because archaeologists go over and study it in Egyptology. 
These are very confirming. There are lots of other things that are confirming and consistent with the idea that this is one constant book. So I just warn you as you go out and get scholastic books to be careful. There are some great ones to get. I should have put recommendations down here. If you want a good Old Testament book, uh, it's a honking big book. It's probably expensive, but it's by R.K. Harrison, Introduction to the Old Testament. It's got like 80,000 gazillion pages. Um, but uh, I heartily recommend that if you ever want to, you can probably order it off Amazon.com. I don't know. I'd look on eBay. Um, R.K. Harrison, Introduction to the Old Testament. Outstanding book, one of the best. Um, there are several others that are good. Now, let's conclude. What are your points to take home? By the way, you all have done excellent eating your vegetables this morning. I appreciate it more than you know. And, uh, you know, we've got dessert coming. Uh, come back, bring your friends. Uh, it, it won't be such a, uh, uh, a vegetable-intensive lesson. Points to take home. Number one, learning weapon safety. Why? Because this is your sword. You need to know where it's sharp and what's the flat side of it and how to use it. You need to know where it came from. It's important to eat your vegetables. It's important that you be able to, to talk about the first five books of Moses. It's important that you know when Jesus says, everything that's written about me is confirmed in the law and the prophets, that he's talking about the Old Testament. In addition to learning weapon safety, we've learned some pragmatics. We know how the Bible's divided. You've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. We know terms for the Bible parts, the Torah, the Pentateuch. We know the authorship of the Pentateuch. It's Moses. We are learning the context of how God speaks to us. We are learning when you open up Genesis and you start recounting a history story. Why it is God put it there. He put it there first to prepare for the kingdom and then to show you the inauguration of the kingdom. Then we'll see the working out of the kingdom. Then when we hit the New Testament, we will understand when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand that He's not talking about Israel, but the real kingdom. And it's going to be powerful. This is a story of redemption. This is a story of the kingdom of God. And it has come to us. Thank you for eating your vegetables this morning. We wish you a good week. We will see you next week.